welcome again to Impact Church. Um, if uh, you know me, you may be surprised by this, but as a, as a kid and even into my teenage years, I was actually a pretty shy person. Um, kid, I was very shy. It took me a while to open up, especially to adults. It would take me a little while to open up. Um, and when I became a teenager, there were certain environments that I would just get really shy for some reason. Um, I remember in ninth grade, um, I started going to a private school. I actually went to Chapelgate, which is right down the street from here, uh, is where I went for my entire high school. So being a ninth grader, uh, when I went to Chapelgate, it, was, it offered um, sixth grade all the way up. So when I was there, um, most of the people already knew each other, but I was brand new to this school in ninth grade. And being kind of a shy kid, it took me a little bit of time to make friends at my high school. I always had some friends, but I didn't have a ton of friends. Um, I was a couple people I was very close with. I was one of those guys that like, if we go to the high school reunion, and we only had six people in our class, but most of my school would be like, Eric, oh, I guess I remember that guy. Like, I just, no one really recognized me, knew me. I got, as a high schooler, I got zero interest from any females at my school, so that was hard, and I had a couple friends. That was about how I was in my high school. But there was a place that I was a little different, and that was in my youth group. Around 10th grade, um, we started going to a brand new church, and I started going to this brand new youth group where there was a lot of, st- a lot of students there. And um, the first day I arrived, I talked to the, to the um, youth pastor. He found out that I played drums. And he got really excited and said, oh, you play drums, we need a drummer for the worship band. And I'll tell you right now, by the way, I get excited when, t- when some of you tell me you play drums or an instrument because we always need people. Frank, see, we always need people, okay? So um, they got really excited that I was there because I could play drums. They didn't have a drummer. So I started playing drums, and I started getting really involved. And before you knew it, I wasn't the shy kid that I was in my high school. At youth group, I was the outgoing one. I was the one who was leading things. I was the one that girls actually showed interest in for some reason. Like, that's who I was. A youth group was so different. Um, and my closest group of friends that I formed in my high school days was not from my actual high school. I had friends, but that wasn't where my close group was. It was youth group. It was about 10 kids, 10 students that I really grew close with through my youth group, a very close bond between about 10 of us. And us 10, we would go to youth group every Wednesday. We would go to church every single Sunday. Um, we would go to every youth event they had. We would be there for those. We would hang out at the Arundel Mills Mall constantly whenever we could. We were there. That was our, that was our spot. And uh, on summer nights, we played Halo basically every single night. That's what we did. Us, it was the same 10 that did basically everything together. Us 10 loved hanging out with each other, and we all had the same belief system. We all believed the same thing about our faith, but we also liked to do other stuff together. So because of that, there were some of the pitfalls that some high schoolers go through or temptations that I didn't go through. Um, I didn't have a season in high school of partying or experimenting with drugs or alcohol or sleeping around because I had a group of friends that we just had no interest in that. So I just hung out with these 10 people constantly that had the same beliefs as I did, and we were very close. But over the years, that faith that us 10 had did not stay with all of us. Myself and my brother and one of my best friends are still very strong in our faith. Um, We still uh, have faith. And then out of the 10, there's three other ones that would call themselves Christians, but um, they haven't been to church in years, and they don't really live it out. And then there's four of those guys that completely walked away, not followers of Jesus anymore. And this week, I was trying to think of those four guys, and I was trying to think of why. 
Why do these four guys decide to walk away from faith when all ten of us grew up with a strong foundation, but some of them walked away? And here's what I discovered as thinking about this week. One of those guys moved away. He moved to a city that he didn't know anybody, and he got a new group of friends because he was in a brand new city, he didn't know anybody, and that group of friends um, that he hung out with, um, that group did not believe anything. So at first he was the only person that had faith in this group of friends that didn't, until eventually he did not have faith anymore being around those people. That was the first guy. The other, another guy grew up in a very sheltered, strict uh, Christian home, traditional home. And so he kind of stayed in it, and then eventually he got a little bit of a, of a taste of um, what it's like to not be that way, and then all of a sudden he exploded. And he just started going a completely different direction, started partying all the time, started doing a lot of drugs, and he still lives that lifestyle to this day. Another guy, um, he had tragedy in his life. His, uh, one of his parents passed away very young at an early age, um, and um, he, it was completely unexpected. And with that tragedy, when that, that parent died, his faith died with it. And then the last one, you know what happened to that person who lost his faith? Nothing. He just walked away. Nothing major happened. He didn't move away. He didn't get another group of friends. He just said, you know what? I just don't think I believe this anymore. All 10 of us have felt torn before, that ten, those, us 10. Some of us grew stronger in our faith while others lost it. But we all went through seasons of doubt, seasons of being torn. Throughout this series, that's what we've been talking about. That's what we'll be talking about for the rest of a couple weeks is, what do we do when we feel torn? When we feel like we want to believe this, but we're having trouble believing it. When, when we have this faith, but we have these doubts as well. And what we said last week, we're going to be saying this throughout the entire series, is that doubts are not a sign of a dying faith. Doubts are a sign of an active faith. Your doubts do not make you a bad Christian. They do not disqualify your faith. They do not, sh- they, they do not show that you are sinning. Your doubts show that you are thinking, you are processing. And I believe that a season of being torn, a season of doubts can actually lead you to a stronger faith because of it. And I believe that right now, there's really two groups in the room. There's two groups. Group one is the people that feel torn today, that you're here with your doubts, you're here with your struggles, and you feel torn. You've been struggling with your confidence in your faith recently and this whole Jesus thing and everything. And to you, I would say, I am so happy you're here because you don't have to be here, but you chose to be here even with your doubts and your struggles. And I'm here to tell you that it's okay that you're here with your doubts and your struggles, that you feel torn. That's group one. The second group that I know is here, people who don't feel that way, people who aren't torn, people who don't have doubts, that maybe in the past you have, but today you feel confident in your faith. And for you, Here's your goal. Your goal is to help. Your goal is to help the people around you, the people that you love, the people that are closest to you that do feel doubts and do feel torn. Your goal is to help them with their faith, not by making them feel guilty about it, but by loving them through it. Because feeling torn in your faith is nothing new. There are so many examples in the Bible. Last week we talked about the disciples, how some of the disciples after Jesus' resurrection still doubted. Last week we talked about Thomas, who also goes by the name of Doubting Thomas. And today we're going to talk about probably my favorite person in the Bible, my favorite character in the Bible, that's Peter. Peter, being he was one, he's one of my favorites because he's so relatable to me. Peter um, really wanted to follow Jesus well, and he was bold in his faith, but he kept getting in his own way. 
Peter um, was around when Jesus first started his ministry. Jesus is in the heart of his ministry, and Jesus feeds the 5,000. You might know that story um, where he feeds the 5,000 with some bread and some fish. And after that, he dismisses the disciples. He tells the disciples, why don't you guys go on the boat? I'll catch up to you later. He dismisses the rest of the crowd, and then Jesus goes and prays. And while the disciples are on the boat, um, it says that a wind is being blown, and it's getting really windy, and the waves are getting high, and and these men, a lot of them were fishermen. They kind of know what to do in this situation, but it's starting to get a little scary for them. So all of a sudden, they look out in the water, and they see a person. They see a figure walking towards them. So what do they think? They think the only logical thing. The only logical response is to be like, that's got to be a ghost. That's what they think, because people don't walk on water. So if you see a figure on the water, you think, that's a ghost. That can't be a person. But then they hear the voice of Jesus calling out from the water, that's where we'll pick up in Matthew chapter 14, if you have your Bibles or your Bible apps. We'll start in verse 27. It'll be on the screen as well. Here's what Jesus calls out to them. He says this, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Peter's on the boat. Bold Peter is on this boat, and he wants some proof. So again, people don't walk on water. So here's what Peter says. He says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on water. It's bold. That's a pretty bold ask. Hey, listen, if it's really you, if you're really walking on water, because people don't do that, if you're really walking on water, that means that you can do miracles and you can do the impossible. So if you can walk on water, you can make me walk on water. So if that's really you, make me walk on water as well. Help me to walk on water. I wish that I had that bold of faith. That's a bold faith right there. But sometimes I struggle with that because sometimes when I pray, I pray knowing God can do something about what I'm praying about, but then I feel like I need to give God an out just in case he doesn't do it. There are times I've prayed and I said, God, I pray for healing in this person and I I believe you can, when in the back of my mind I'm thinking, but I know you're probably not going to, so I'm going to give you a doubt and say, hey, it's an out and I'm going to say, whatever your will, be done. I do that a lot. But let me ask you a question. Jesus is walking on water. If Jesus didn't make Peter also walk on water, does that change the fact that Jesus is walking on water? Does that change the fact that Jesus is doing the miraculous, that Jesus is doing the impossible? Jesus doesn't have to prove anything to anyone. Jesus didn't have to say, Peter, yeah, go walk on water. He didn't have to do that because he's doing the impossible right then. But what does Jesus decide to do this time? It says this in verse 29. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came towards Jesus. He chose this time to prove it to Peter. So I've learned when I pray, I can pray fully expecting God to heal, fully expecting God to show up, fully expecting God to save, to answer that prayer, while at the same time still having faith, even if it doesn't go the way I want it to go. Even if it doesn't go the way I want it, because I can still believe that God still capable. So Peter, because of his bold faith, he does the impossible. He gets out of the boat, starts walking on water. And we, you may have not felt faith that's that strong before, but there are times when we go through seasons where it's like, it's bold faith. Maybe when you first started following Jesus, or, or you made it your own for the first time, 
the times when you felt really close to God in your faith, that your faith felt as strong as ever, that you felt close to God, you felt like God was speaking through you, through a sermon, or through people, or through what you're reading, that God was answering your prayer, you're born in your faith, and it's almost like a faith that you feel like, maybe I can walk on water with this kind of faith. And, but what can happen with that faith? You can do exactly what Peter did. Verse 30 says this, But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. He noticed everything around him. He noticed that the wind was causing all the waves. I can imagine what he's thinking. He's probably thinking something like, what am I doing? I can't walk on water. It's really stormy out, and it's, the winds are high, and the waves are crashing. I, you can see how he's torn. He, he knows he's walking on water, while at the same time knows he's not supposed to be walking on water. He sees what's happening, and it happens to us too. We have this bold faith where we feel like, man, we can walk on water, but then we look around. Look around all the things going on. Look around with the things that are happening in our life, the things that we can't understand, the things that don't make sense, all the things that, and all the times we haven't felt close to God, all the times that God did not answer the prayer that we wanted him to answer. And all of a sudden, we can do what Peter did, start to sink in our doubts and feel torn. Verse 31, immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? Why did you doubt? You're walking on water. Why did you doubt? That's an that's a important question to ask. Why do we doubt? Last week we talked about this a little bit. I'm going to give more specific examples. Here's some reasons we doubt. Sometimes we doubt because of questions from the Bible. Not just questions. Questions specifically from this. Question from the Bible. Maybe you read something. I want to start my spiritual journey. Read something. And you go. Wait, that's in there. God commanded Israelites to kill all the women and children. That's in there. Wait, if you touch the Ark of the Covenant, you were dead like that. That's in there. Maybe we have questions from the Bible. Maybe you read something and it doesn't match your understanding of science. Maybe you believe in evolution your entire life and you read this. And go. Wait, I got to believe in six days. Like. That's in there? Wait, this says that there was a global flood? That, that's in there? Questions from the Bible can cause a lot of doubts. What else can, why do we doubt? Not feeling God's presence. When I was younger, I would listen to pastor after pastor after pastor give this sermon. At the end, they would say something like, and then I was praying about the situation, and I heard God say this to me. And I would hear it over and over and over, and I would always think, I've never heard that. I've never been praying and felt like I heard God's voice. That's not me. And all of a sudden, I started to feel like, am I doing this wrong? Is God not around me as much? And for some of us, we might be here, and we're singing some worship songs, and you might see your spouse getting into it, and you're sitting there going, I, I don't feel anything. It's just a song to me. I don't, I don't feel any connection. I don't feel connected to God any closer right now. Maybe for some of us, we doubt because we just don't feel God's presence at all. Why do we doubt? Tragic things that God allows. There's a story of um, Steve Jobs. He was a teenager going to church and to Sunday school, and one day he had a National Geographic, and um, the, the story goes that he, he read about all these things that were happening in Africa and people that were dying of starvation, and there was pictures of people that were rail thin because they had no food 
to eat, and he took the magazine to his Sunday school, and he went to the teacher and said, if God can do every, anything, why doesn't he do anything about this? Why doesn't he do something about this? And from that day forward, he decided he couldn't believe in a God that sits passively by as tragic tragedy happens, tragedy that God could do something about. And maybe that's you. You see some of the tragedy happening in this world, things like school shootings and natural disasters and sex trafficking, and you think, if there's a God out there, why isn't he doing anything about this stuff if he can do something? Or maybe it isn't even tragedy in this world, it's personal tragedy. The person you love left you. The family you prayed for abandoned you. You got a bad report from a doctor. Your loved one passed away. This tragedy can cause doubt. Now why else do we doubt wounds that won't heal? You looked up to that pastor until you learned their dark secret behind closed doors. You looked up at that parent as a spiritual leader until you realized that parent was having an affair. Maybe it's simply that you read this and then you look at the church and you go, what I see in here does not match the church I see. I don't know what I can do about that because it doesn't connect wounds that won't heal. The question Jesus asked Peter is the same question being asked to us today. Why did you doubt? When I used to read this question, um, I used to read it as Jesus like accusing him, like an accusation. Why did you doubt? You don't have enough faith. Why would you do that? But the more I've read the Gospels, the more I've, I've learned about Jesus' character, here's what I've learned. Jesus' question wasn't an accusation. It was an invitation. It wasn't an accusation because if it's an accusation, why did you doubt? Jesus would let Peter drown in the water of his doubt. Jesus doesn't do that. What does he do? Instead, he reaches out his hand. Why did you doubt? When you read the Gospels, this is the character of Jesus, a Savior who comes to our level, who reaches for us and asks us, why did you doubt? Peter, you were walking on water. Why did you doubt? You didn't have to doubt. You were doing it. You do not need to doubt. Jesus isn't condemning Peter with a question. He is encouraging Peter. When Peter was drowning in his doubts, Jesus came to his rescue and said, why did you doubt? Why did you do it? Here is why this is important to understand. If you're here with doubts, if you're, here, if you're here and you feel torn, it's not time to panic. It's time to process. God is there in the midst of your doubts. You are not condemned because of it. You are invited to keep going even with your doubts. If a loved one of yours is doubting, it's not time to panic. It's time to process. Because how you respond to them while they work through this journey of their faith is very important. If you do not handle their, your loved one's doubts correctly, then they will feel accused rather than invited. It's important. Time to process. There's a word that's gotten really popular in the, in the Christian world in the past five or ten years, a um, word you probably heard. It's a word called deconstruction. Maybe you heard this word before. And there are arguments on both sides of why deconstruction is a bad thing and why it can be a good thing. And what I've learned is just like most things is that there's valid arguments on both sides and done to be one or the other. It can be both. Um, I've heard people say that deconstruction without construction is just destruction. And um, I can agree with that in some situations, but I would say just because something rhymes doesn't make it right, okay? It's important to understand that. 
Um, but this week, I listened to um, a pastor that, one of the pastors I listen to a lot, um, his name's uh, Pastor Craig Rochelle of Life Church, a uh, really big church um, in different part of the country. And he talked about deconstruction. Here's how he defined it, and here's kind of what he argued, and I would tend to agree at times with this. Um, here's a definition I'll give for deconstruction, when it's done in a good way, when it's done in a healthy way. It is a sincere examination of your beliefs, seeking to let go of what is untrue so you can hold on to what is true. Deconstruction, when done in a healthy way, can help examine your spiritual journey to see what things you believe that do not align with who Jesus is in here. What things you believe that aren't necessarily true. So you can let go of that and you can embrace what is true. Craig Rochelle um, argued, and I, can, I tend to agree, that Jesus actually helped people deconstruct in the Gospels. In Matthew 5, you read Matthew 5, you've Jesus is saying stuff like this. He would say, you've heard, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That you believe that you should hate those mean people. You've heard that. That's what you believe is true. I'm telling you that's not true anymore. That you need to love your enemies. That they have value too. All of Matthew 5, a lot of Matthew 5 is talking about this. He'll say, you heard this, but I'm telling you this. You could all say it this way. You believe this, but you need to believe this instead. You thought this was true, but this is what's actually true. Peter even had a belief. He had a belief of who the Messiah would be, like a lot of Jewish people back then. He believed that the Messiah would be a conquering king. He would come and he would conquer everybody, kind of like David. He conquered everybody. He killed everyone that was against him, and he was the king that reigned, the conquering king. And Jesus said, no, no, no. I'm not here to be a conquering king. I'm here to be a suffering servant. I'm here to be a suffering servant who will not kill others, but will allow others to kill me. You thought I would achieve my mission through conquest, Peter? I'm going to achieve it through sacrifice. This is not what Peter expected. So when Peter sees Jesus arrested, how does Peter respond? He starts fighting. He gets his sword out. He cuts one of the soldiers' ears off. He's ready to fight because this is the conquering king. You do not take the conquering king. He's going to rule. And Jesus says, no, it's not how we're going to do it. Jesus goes and gets arrested. You know Peter's story. He eventually denies Jesus three times. He denies him out of fear of safety, but some scholars would even argue that he denied him out of confusion of who Jesus was, of who he actually was. Let me ask you a question. How do you build your belief system? Whatever you're here with today, if you're here and you would say, I'm a follower of Jesus, what is the foundation of your belief system? If you have to think about it, don't say it out loud, just think about it. What I would think most people would say is this. The Bible is the foundation of my belief system. I, this is truth, and I build my belief system on what this says. B-I-B-L-E, that's the book for me. This is what I believe. Some of us would say that, right? I would say that's wrong. You don't build your belief system on the Bible. Here's what you build your belief system on. You built your belief system, just like I did, on the way your church taught the Bible. You built your belief system on the way your parents taught the Bible. You built your belief system on the way your community talked about the Bible. You built your belief system on how you interpret the Bible, on your preconceived thoughts, on your opinions, of your traditions, of the way you are made. That's how we all build our belief system. It doesn't matter who you are. Here's what it looks like. We think we read this and we just read truth. But here's what we're actually doing. All of us have a lens. It's the way we look at everything in the world. 
It's the way that we are built. It's the way that we look. So when we read the Bible, we think we're reading it clearly, but we're actually reading it through our lens, the lens that we have. We tend to think that we have it, but whether you have a theological degree or not, whether you grew up in a Christian home or not, all of us have a lens. And this lens is made of many things. It's your traditions, how you grew up, the, the, the way your family taught you. Maybe you grew up in a, Christ, in a strict Christian home. Your lens was built that way. You might not be in that kind of home anymore, but your lens was still influenced by that. Maybe you pushed far from your faith and you kind of returned on your own. Your lens is built that tradition. Maybe you grew up conservative and it helped you become a conservative today. Maybe you grew up liberal and it helped you become a liberal today. Or maybe the opposite happened. You grew up conservative, now you're liberal and vice versa. That is all influencing the lens that each one of us has, your traditions, how you grew up. What else influences this lens? Your experiences. You grew up with a different experience, whether it's the church you went to as you grew up, whether it's the people you hung out with, and it influences the lens that you have. You grew up being a lot, around a lot of different people that added to this lens. Maybe your parents gave you a great example of the lens you should have. Or maybe they gave you a terrible example of the lens you should have, but they still influenced your lens. Or maybe it's simply your personality. The way God made you to be, the way God made you to think, the way that, that, that you are, the person that you are, and it affects the way you read the Bible. All of us have a lens. You don't have to apologize for it. We all have it. Here's why it's important to understand that we have it. We need to understand that because we have a lens, that there could be something in this view that's wrong. There could be something in here that is not correct. There could be something through this lens that you misunderstood. And when that happens, you don't have to throw your faith away because you have the wrong lens. It's important to understand that. I was a youth pastor for a long time, and I had a parent at one point, right when I first started being a youth pastor, came out to me in a panic. And she was like, I need to talk to you about my son. It's, it's an emergency. I said, okay, we can, let's go get lunch after church. Let's talk about it. And I'm expecting the absolute worst possible scenario. I'm like, oh no, what, what is this parent going to tell me? So we go and we get together and um, this, this mom said, hey, I, I just don't know what to do. I am so devastated by what I found out about my son. I was like, okay, well, what, what happened? He said, my son believes in evolution. I said, okay. And then they said, I said, well, how's his faith? I said, no, his faith's strong as ever. He just believes that God used evolution to make the world, and I believe in six-day creationism. What do I do? And I said, the reply I gave, she didn't love. I went, so what? That was my reply. Here's what she was mad about. She wasn't mad. This isn't a statement on evolution, creationism, whatever. We can talk about that another time. Here's what she was mad about. She wasn't mad about her son's faith. She was mad that he had the incorrect lens in her eyes. She still strongly believed in his faith. He just believed something in his lens was different. She was upset about it. She wasn't concerned about her son's faith, concerned about having the correct lens. Here's our goal about everything. Unbelieve what is untrue and pursue what is true. Unbelieve what is untrue, pursue what is true. You might say, well, how do we do that if we all have a lens, two ways. You admit you have one. It's not wrong. We all do it. Then we do everything we can to push this lens aside and look at everything in this book through the lens of Jesus Christ. When you read the Old Testament, you look at it through the lens of Jesus. When you read how the disciples acted with other people, you look at it through the lens of Jesus. If you have 
questions and concerns, you're not sure about something you believe, you go to the Gospels, read how Jesus responded and reacted to people around him. Look at the people that Jesus loved. Look at how Jesus treated the outcasts, the sinners, the least of these. If you have questions about the Old Testament, you go to the Gospels and read how Jesus was. We look at everything through the lens of Jesus. Here's our goal, and this is so important. Your goal in life is not to be right. Your goal is to be loving. That's our goal. If we as Christians are only concerned about being right, we're not looking at life the way Jesus did, we're looking at it through our lens. Our goal is not to be right, it's to be loving. So to both groups that are here, whether you're currently doubting or you love someone who is doubting, I want you to remember the story of Peter. Peter doubted, Peter denied, Peter was torn in his faith, but Jesus still went to Peter. After um, Jesus' resurrection, Jesus finds Peter on a boat. Peter comes back and they eat breakfast and, and Jesus says the same thing three times to Peter. He says, do you love me? Peter says, I do. He says, then feed my sheep. Do you love me? I do. Then feed my sheep. Do you love me? I do. Then feed my sheep. What is Jesus doing here? He's doing a lot of things. Jesus is reinstating Peter. He's reminding him of his denial, and he's saying, I'm reinstating you. You are not that mistake. You're reinstated. Jesus is giving Peter a mission. Since you love me, go feed my sheep. You have a mission to do. Jesus is also reminding Peter. He's reminding Peter that Jesus is the shepherd who leaves the 99 sheep for the one. Peter heard the sermon. He heard the story Jesus said. Leave the 99 for the one. Feed my sheep. You're one of those sheep. You were a lost sheep. I came to you. From there, Peter goes on to preach at Pentecost. At Pentecost, 3,000 people meet Jesus because of Peter's sermon. Peter, if you look at history, becomes the first pope. And 30 years later, Peter, the one who doubted, the one who felt torn, the one who denied, wrote this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 25. 30 years later, Peter wrote this. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. Who better to write this, to write this verse, than a lost sheep who in the midst of drowning in his doubts had the rescuing hand of the shepherd? That is who we follow. So as we get ready to close, I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up. We're going to close today by taking communion together. I think there's no better way to reflect on who Christ is and the lens that we have and what do we do with our doubts than to take together communion, which shows us and reflects the fact that Jesus came for us, built a bridge for us by dying on a cross for us. That because of that, that's him reaching out his hand to us. That even if you doubt, even if you're doubting now or you're torn, he just reaches out a hand to you. We know that because he came and died on a cross for us. So as you get ready to take communion, if you're new here, I welcome you to take communion. We don't, you don't have to be an owner here at Impact Church. This doesn't have to be your church home in order to take communion here. We ask that you be a follower of Jesus. 
that even in the midst of your doubts, you can still take communion. We just ask to be a follower of Jesus. And if you're here today and you want to make that decision today, this can be the way you make that decision today. You do not feel like you cannot take it because you are not an owner. Do not feel pressured. If you don't want to, you can stay seated. Do not worry about it. But this is a chance and opportunity for us to reflect the sacrifice God gave us. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray in a second. I'm going to invite you to, each one of you to go out in the middle um, aisle and go and take your elements while the worship team plays. We're going to take it together. So I invite you when you come back just to take a seat and reflect on what God has spoken to you today. Um, if you are gluten-free, by the way, we have a gluten-free option. Tim, who has the bread, will, will show that to you. Um, but I want to give you this opportunity to reflect on the sacrifice God gave us that even if you're doubting or you have a loved one who is doubting, Christ came for you. Reached out a hand. He does not condemn you or accuse you. He invites you. And that's what we're going to be celebrating today. So let me pray. Dear God, I thank you for being the God who gives us hope, being the God who reaches out to us, the God who came to save us, who built the bridge for us. That even though we didn't deserve it, even though we are far from perfect, that you loved us enough, sent your son for us. God, I pray for both groups that are in the room today. Pray for those that are feeling torn today, that are feeling those doubts, and just help them feel comfort. I mean, it's okay. You're not the God who accuses them, but you're the God who walks with them as they navigate through their doubts. And I pray for the people in this room who have loved ones that they're trying to help. And I pray that you give them the knowledge and the courage to help the people around them feel invited and not accused, to love them through this season. God, we thank you that you are the God who gives us a hope, that you allow us to, to give questions. We allow, you allow us to come to you with our doubts and our struggles because you are the true God. Help us have the confidence in you today. In your son's name, amen.